Welcome to the Build the Future podcast, where we host conversations that promote positive and exciting visions of the future. Today, we're talking with Rohit Krishnan, a venture capitalist and the writer of Strange Loops. Strange Loops is a weekly newsletter about the strange loops on the systems underlying progress, innovation, and the world of technology. And in the process, it's trying to create a philosophy of business. Let's jump right in. what the process looks like on, on kind of the day-to-day basis. So you're trying to like think about like, okay, what is what is the landscape of the, the future going to look like? What are the companies to invest in? How do you kind of think about doing kind of your research around that? The process of investing in, in some ways, like let's make a spectrum, right? There is a highly quantitative end of the spectrum where you try to get as many signals as possible, analyze it, compare to past data and see whether that predicts anything about the future. So it works really well with hedge funds. It works kind of okay with private equity companies. It works not that well when it comes down to venture, partly because there is not that much data and the risk is very high. So what you're trying to do is to hack that process. You're trying to come up with heuristics that kind of satisfy it without really having any hard data in your hand. For example, if I tell you, you know, fintech is amazing, and look, here's the data that proves fintech is amazing, the amount of money that went into the sector, et cetera, you got to ask yourself, does that mean like I now need to look somewhere else? Because if it is that hot, then maybe, you know, the best companies might already have been funded or like the ROI might be declining over time. I'm not, it's not a perfect metric, which is why it's a hard question. So to me, like it starts by trying to craft some ideas about what that heuristic actually looks like. So there are areas that I find personally interesting, exciting that I spend time on because I like it. You know, I'm an engineer and economist by background, right? So I could give you quantitative reasons why I'm excited about something, but I feel like that approach does not work in venture. Like you actually have to be excited about something. (laughs) If you're not excited, you're not going to spend time on it, right? So like open source is an area that I still find fascinating. Anything around the infrastructure software I find fascinating. I've recently started getting more interested in the medical slash uh, materials side of thing. I don't know if I'll end up investing in it, but I like it because I think it's a fascinating area that needs to get more capital behind it. So you have these heuristics and these are areas that you are that you find interesting. After that heuristic of the market, then it's like, let's go find 10 companies and figure out who's interesting, right? Go talk to a bunch of them. And then it becomes much more like, do I like the founder? Are their numbers good? Are their metrics good? Does their product pass muster? Like it's a more understandable set of criteria that comes after it. If it's something like a SaaS company, it's super easy. If it's a lot of marketplace company, if it's something like, I don't know, like I invested in a company called Waha last year, which does uh, fitness devices. It's like Mirror in the US or like uh, Peloton. It's slightly more complex because like apart from Peloton, the the metrics are not as well known, right? So you kind of have to construct yourself. But like the process is similar. So I don't know whether I answered what does your day look like very well, but like that's at least how I make up my mind. And this kind of flows through your whole life. One of the trends that seems to be going on is the shift from venture capital is kind of turning into private equity because there's so much data available around like, SaaS companies, marketplace companies. And so there's not as much of that true, like you have to make a gut decision like you would have, you know, 10 years ago, right? When people were like, we're going to invest in Uber, Airbnb. It's like, these guys are crazy. But now it's like, oh, you have your products in the market. You're growing at this rate. You have this, like there's, there's a lot more signal to pull from. It's just like an interesting kind of trend line. And so I'm, I'm excited to see 
you know, that capital and those returns then hopefully shift to more of the gut-based investing, like once again. I mean, like, look, venture capital as an industry itself is maturing. So if you looked at software companies 10 years ago versus software companies today, they don't look very similar. I mean, they kind of do, but they, like they work very differently. The speed is much higher. Repeatability is much higher. It's just the same adventure. One of the ideas that I'm personally super excited about is how Tiger and Insight Partners have kind of copied the Y Combinator model and applied it to late stage venture because they just said, we are not going to actively try and find who's going to be the next Coinbase or Stripe. We're going to find out who are the duds and kick them out and then buy the index, right? So that's why they get to deploy like $7 billion in a quarter and then like you get results that are according to it. So in some ways, as industries mature, you're going to get more systematization and systematization means you're going to take less risks. But I'll point out in that same time frame, and this has happened, there was also funding of companies like BioNTech, right? I mean, on the medical side, there was there's funding of companies like Commonwealth Fusion. There's been a crazy boom in space, which still strikes me as slightly absurd, but it's true and it's like highly productive, you know, Warda and so on. There's been a massive boom in crypto, which regardless of your opinion about crypto has been, it is an out there technology because even today, like nobody agrees whether it has value or not. So it's uh, what I'm saying is that it's slightly more nuanced, right? I mean, there'll always be cowboys who kind of go off and invest in like crazy shit, and some of them will be successful, but like not all of them, obviously. How do you view the the crypto landscape right now? <laughs> Time to get strong opinions, huh? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of it with caveats. So I'm a fan of it, number one, for a philosophical reason, in the sense that there needs to be way more experimentation generally, and crypto as a sort of fundamental technology base leads to way more experimentation in terms of sort of way firms are set up, way incentives are set up, way employees are paid, way the stakeholders are getting remunerated, et cetera. That I think fundamentally, it's great that we are getting that oxygen, right? Not all of it will succeed, et cetera, et cetera, because like early financialization is not that great, I feel, generally speaking, for early stage technologies. Like if you tell me, there's a way for you to make money off of TCP IP in the early days of the internet. And because it, you can create a market and trade it, I'm not entirely sure whether that's a good thing. But I love the fact that there's experimentation here because without having experimentation, you're not really going to be able to get crazy results, right? So that's, I guess, my philosophical liking for the space, number one. Philosophical liking for the space, number two, is that in a financial services industry, like if you've ever looked at any company trying to disrupt any part of this ecosystem, you would have looked at the incumbents and kind of gotten freaked out at how ossified and crazy complicated it is. I worked at it when I was at McKinsey. I served a bunch of these banks and insurance companies. And now I sit on the board of InsurTechs and like look at fintechs who are trying to disrupt them. Man, it's complicated. Like it is because it's like 40 years of patches over patches over patches, right? So it's like, you, if you look at a tech stack, it has COBOL from, you know, 40 years ago, all the way up to like whatever the latest thing is that some developer threw it. So the problem with that is that if you want to kind of disrupt that industry in any meaningful sense, you need to kind of build a new stack, right? And crypto gives you that new stack that allows a bunch of systems to actually talk to each other, which I don't think I have seen very often. Like APIs kind of started to get there, but crypto kind of gives a real incentive for cross-chain communication. And that, I think, is fascinating. 
And that's also the only way that you're realistically going to be able to take costs out of the system because the number of friction points is so high. So with both of that, I am excited about it. I, I'd love to see where it goes. I think we are so early in the space that predictions are kind of crazy. Like 90% of the problem I have with crypto is that the people who are pro-crypto are so vociferous about it, yet not that right about it. Like they talk about monetary economics and nobody needs to know everything about technology and cryptography and software and economics. Like that Venn diagram is like a handful of people in the world, which is okay, right? But so you don't need to make an economic argument about how a deflationary asset is the right thing for you to go after in the world when you don't really understand it all that well. Like it's just, it's not that long ago that we had a deflationary asset or at least we were back to the gold standard and it wasn't sort of, I mean, we went off it for a very, very good reason. So I feel like that argumentation substantially weakens the argument for crypto. And similarly, the whole pump and dump stuff where any new coin that comes up gets pumped up. And that's because it's like, you've suddenly made an invisible tech asset into a financial asset. And when you do that, you're going to get these pumps and dumps. I mean, that's the main reason I said, like, if you had a TCP IP coin, I'm not sure it would have been great for the internet necessarily. It's not a fait accompli, right? You can't uh, bank on it. The political philosophy underlying the space is fascinating too, because it enables like new organizations to be built, especially in contrast with like the ossified existing institutions. And that's what's really exciting, at least to me, is the ability to like, we build new things. Yeah. No, I agree. Like I said in the beginning, right? I think if you look at, if you look at existing organizational structures, there's a few for-profit structures, all of whom basically look roughly the same. I think the biggest change or biggest arguments about for-profit structures revolve around some combination of, you know, dual class shareholding today. Or like, if you go a few years back, there was a big argument about, should you be a conglomerate or not? You know, these are important discussions, but these are hardly the parameters of, you can argue about so much more, right? So ultimately, what I one of the things, I mean, it's slightly parenthetical, but one of the things I find fascinating is that a lot of the crypto-based, decentralized governance-based organizations resemble cooperatives that have existed for a long time in different parts of the world. And I just find that parallel fascinating because, you know, we are almost creating a new way to serve like a business economic model that is really tiny and exists in different parts of the world. So let's see how it comes up. But I think there needs to be way more, there needs to be way more experimentation on organizational setups because everybody just chooses one of two ways and just goes with it. And then the ideas can battle themselves out like in the market. And then it's like, oh, we have a ton of other options. One thing that I've been keen on is the whole decentralized autonomous organization, the DAO space is still pretty early but the possibility for people to crowdfund things that they believe in. For example, no big organization wants to fund a nuclear power plant because the time, the return timelines are so long. It doesn't kind of match up with their incentives. They have to kind of follow with their shareholders, but you could have a hundred thousand people who like care about that source of energy. Like, Oh, I'll put this into a DAO and like let this thing ride out for 20 years. Then it gets funded and people aren't doing it. They're doing it for like some percentage of like a return, but not like enormous quarter by quarter. And that's something that hasn't existed before. Now, like the hand, like the ability to kind of like organize and fund things through the public sphere is now possible using this technology that when it wasn't before. And I think like that has profound implications if we play this thing out. 
No, indeed. I mean, one way to double click on that is just look at, I mean, Kickstarter is not that old is one way I would say it. So crowdfunding in itself is ridiculously early and the Kickstarter with equity type companies are even younger and none of them are large. So like, that's what I kind of mean when I say also, like, I mean, I agree with you, right? There's, man, there's so much stuff that we can try out and to be done here. And I'm just glad that there's experimentation going on because I think that's hypercritical for anything that we want to do in the future. I mean, solving coordination problems at scale is kind of behind, I don't know, like most of the world's problems, it seems like. It's like coordination and communication seem to be a, the two things. <laughs> I'd be curious, when you, when you look ahead, call it like 10, 20 years from now, like what are you most excited about the world looking like? You know, blank canvas, like what should we be doing? How should we be operating? What sort of things should we should exist that don't currently exist, but that you would like to see? I've thought about it a little bit and I've written it about it a little bit as well. I think, I mean, we touched upon the coordination and communications problems a little bit, right? To me, that is indicative of the fact that as the complexity and the interconnectedness within the world increases and the number of stuff, the sheer scale increases, these problems become exponentially harder, right? I mean, it's kind of a, a problem at scale. Like there are areas where we are kind of working a little bit that I would like us to put more effort into on the margin. So for example, things on energy, whether it's with respect to fusion, et cetera, I think I would like us to spend more effort and money into those segments that I think are important. Similarly, there are areas around material science where I feel like we spend far too little energy because one of the areas that I'm reading up on and researching into at the moment is nanotechnology. And it is it has blown me away how much it has already transformed the world without kind of anybody knowing about it. Like half the medicinal stuff that you read up on is influenced by nanotech. Anytime you have used an adhesive in your burn victims, it's influenced by nanotech because it has this crazy application into medicine that hasn't really come out into the public consciousness. So there's a bunch of work that is going on that I would like to see more of. But I think when we kind of push forward into, you asked about 20 years, right? I think one of the things we still don't do very well is extract information from individual domains or individual subspecialties, individual sectors, individual investors, individual scientists, and have better forums or more forums for that to be discussed within the wider space. Like interdisciplinary research, I think many places have tried it with varying degrees of success, like whatever, Santa Fe Institute, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still few and far between, I feel like. I don't feel like we do enough of that to kind of encourage multiple people to look at the same problem from multiple angles. I feel like that's something I would love to see more of in the next sort of 20 years. Everyone seems to be operating in their, their own little silos around like, oh, I, at this university, we're doing, we're trying to solve this from a biology lens versus like, you know, physics department, like across the country could be trying to solve the same thing. But those nodes aren't talking to each other. Exactly. I mean, one of my sort of ideas, at least, is that if I look at sort of the, the evolution of progress, GDP, industrial revolution, call it what you will, you often see sort of the same themes recurring, right? I mean, if you look at a bunch of the milestones along the way, starting with steam engine and going all the way to the transistor, and it's some combination of, you know, you have fundamental advances in energy where you find new sources of energy and you can capture and utilize them effectively. There's fundamental advances in material science where you can capture and advance, you know, create new types of materials that are better or more usable. There's fundamental advances in knowledge, right? I mean, this can be fundamental knowledge like 
Einstein discovering the general theory of relativity, or it can be more specialized forms of knowledge. And somebody needs to sort of combine these things together in order to truly create the next giant S-curve. And in order to combine things together, normally you see this happen in like small clusters, whether it's places like Bloomsbury Group in London, or whether it's like Silicon Valley, where everybody kind of came together. Like you have these clusters where different ideas can kind of ping off of each other and entirely new types of industries or entirely new types of scenes can form. I'd love to see more of that. That's an interesting way to kind of frame Silicon Valley. I mean, because it truly is, was, or was, is, was, is a giant melting pot of like different perspectives and people were able to like have conversations like this and be like, oh, energy, oh, material science. Oh, okay. Maybe like those things are connected. Oh, let's go do some more research. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, for a long period of time, Silicon Valley used to be all about software for obvious reasons. I mean, it's easier to scale, et cetera, et cetera. But recently, I don't want to say there's been a shift, but at least there's been a clear understanding that you can build big companies with hardware. I mean, start a bit kind of, I mean, LiDAR, Doom, et cetera, which in some ways is a throwback to the original, the Silicon part of Silicon Valley, which is useful because, you know, I don't know whether there is a Fairchild somewhere or like an Intel somewhere, but it's at least interesting to see that you know, once that software is advanced enough, you can now use the software to do things like simulation, which allows, you know, Musk, when he wants to build this rocket, he can do the simulations and kind of make it better, which is not something he could have done 20, 30, 40 years ago, because you just didn't have the computational power to actually try those things out. But now he can. So these things actually relate a lot to each other, which is why I feel like the interstitials where one meets the other are the like truly interesting areas. And I feel I don't know. It, the world would be better if these people actually talk to each other. Well, here's the other thing. I mean, we also have the, the communication mechanisms now that we didn't have even 10 years ago. Right? And so it's like, I think to your point, like these people need to be communicating. 10 years ago, we didn't really have the tools for them to do so. Now those tools exist. And so it's just like someone needs to come in and, and help facilitate that, that conversation. Exactly. Kevin Kelly had this thing about scenes, right? Or seniors where kind of said there exists certain a geographical place at that point in time, but I don't know that it necessarily needs to be a geographical place. It can be distributed, but at least a place where enough different types of people can come together and their ability to be in that place is what enables them to kind of tap into their innate genius and actually makes each other better. It feels like the kind of thing that we should actually be seeing more of, or at least we should be attempting to create more of, and it's fine same like VC, right? It's fine if 15 of the 20 fail. Like you just need to have a couple of successes for it to have an outrageous benefit for all of humanity. This is kind of where we start to kind of blend into like the charter cities movement where people are trying to aggregate their their communities, people who share values online, and then use that as leverage to all move to one, one city or one location. Like Miami is an example of this. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Miami personally, but I understand that the impetus for more people to move there. And I am 100% behind the creation of more hubs because in general, like with everything, having more hubs is better because then you can choose, which is kind of the whole point, right? And a shelling point will get created somewhere where you kind of make a decision based on the basis of X versus Y. And you, at least in you know, the pessimistic view is that today, if you move to Miami or Silicon Valley, you can kind of choose, you know, do you want to go for wildfires or hurricanes? But at least it's a choice. And each place will get specialized over a period of time, right? Like like any of these things, like 
agglomeration economics kind of tells us like you will find clusters and you will have you clusters will get created where each cluster is better for x versus y which is okay but you still need to encourage the development of a whole bunch more clusters because otherwise it's no longer like otherwise you're not really going to be able to see enough breakthrough ideas come out of that individual cluster i think that's kind of the problem i mean you you know i guess you can kind of start to solve it a little bit top down but a lot of this has to be to our point like a bit of a bottom up movement like you kind of you have to want to move to a place you know yeah yeah i want to i want to kind of have you kind of pick on the uh, the nanotech stuff like so so what have you been diving into there what's been like like what's been really interesting about that space we connected over the where's my flying car review you wrote nanotech was a huge theme in there seems to be kind of capped by our inability to figure out the energy problem which is you know for a different discussion but it kind of started a little bit with that book i mean the the, the book is obviously it's fascinating right i mean it's a it's like i said sort of yeah it is difficult to find uh, a truly utopian book that kind of talks about uh, a variety of themes like in general but especially these days that is not just fablum that's just not regurgitating stale talking points about you know the future would be amazing so i feel like uh, despite there being an actual supposedly there's an actual journal of futurism etc but like a lot of it seems fairly negative for better or for worse so that's the already i liked it and obviously he josh speaks quite a lot about nanotech in that book so i was like i mean he's clearly talking this much about it and there seems to be a fair amount of progress and why don't i why don't i know about this why isn't everybody talking about it so i started reading up a little bit on like the different types of techniques and functions that came up because um, i was also reading about like what else has happened in the world of material science that we just don't understand or know about right because like we you know we know a little bit about like the the benefit of creating steel you know several sort of years ago or aluminum due, due to the new process but like we don't know much about what's happening today so um i was reading up one of the successes in this area or i think i'm pretty sure it's a success i'm in the middle of reading up a little bit on it is you know bill clinton signed uh, an agency into being i want to say like 20 years ago almost or you know more than 20 years ago called the national nanotechnology initiative I mean, every it's been bipartisan. Every successful administration has pretty much increased funding or helped them. And these guys, they don't necessarily do a lot of the stuff just themselves, but they act as a conduit to kind of pass or like bring together the various nanotechnology initiatives that are happening in multiple different parts of the federal uh, research ecosystem into like sort of some sort of a centralized core, which is on a, already it's pretty interesting, right? Because they want to kind of look at a wide array of fields, all the way from medicine to sort of physics, chemistry, biology, engineering, electronics, sort of you name it. So I started looking at like what kind of stuff have, have they been doing and, you know, what kind of, I don't know, like how do they do it, et cetera. Now, the first thing I noticed is like their budget is tiny. They get about a billion and a half a year, which is, I mean, if you like, if you look at the federal budgets, a billion and a half, billion and a half is nothing, man. Drop in the bucket. <laughs> exactly. But even with that, I mean, they're still seeing like a whole bunch of stuff that they've created. I mean, there's a few others that have come together afterwards. Like they eliminated, um, at least from the, the recent budget supplement, I remember they eliminated uh, HIV-1 DNA from uh, the genome of some living animals from a, from a modified drug, uh, antiretroviral viral drug. Uh, they created quantum devices. They looked at the designing vaccines for cancer is something that they actually work on on the immunotherapies. I think that's one that I think the DOD works with NIH or some some of the others. They look at 
the thermodynamics for specific pieces of DNA creation, how to create the folds, et cetera. So they create nanosensors that can uh, potentially be useful to help with the diagnostic side of whole list of diseases. I mean, there's also a list, right? I mean, they kind of figure out a way to create better batteries. They're looking at uh, things like if you ma manage to create some of these sensors, et cetera, you can put them into textiles, concrete, et cetera, et cetera. So the more I re read on it, it's a little bit like it's become some version of a general purpose technology that is now embedded everywhere to the point that it's become invisible. So reminds me a little bit of, you know, Mrs. Robinson movie, right? Where they kind of talk about plastics. Plastics is the future. And like, we don't even think about plastics anymore because it's just kind of embedded in everything that we do. So it's it's gone away from the forefront and it's become something that is embedded in pretty much any technology that we kind of use. So I feel like a lot of it is still in the research space and large percentage of this presumably are not really going to actually show up in uh, real life data anytime soon. I would imagine. I mean, the, the positive scenario is that it might. But like the fact that even on a research setting, you're able to get some of these results is, I think, pretty fascinating. I think that's the that's the exciting part about it, because it feels like, you know, you need, you know, for a relatively small budget, if you're able to get pretty great research outcomes, then there is more and more commercialization that can be done from it. And that feels like an area that I think hopefully should come into resurgence at some point in the next few years. I think there is a national nanotechnology entrepreneurship something. I forget the exact name. I think it's like an entrepreneurship network, I think, which has, I mean, a characteristically horrible website, as you would imagine from a government service. And I, I looked at that and I went like, I mean, did these guys make it in like 98? I don't get it. Like, I mean, surely, like, why is this not more exciting? Why is uh, Mark Andreessen not all on top of this? That's the thing. It's like, it seems to be this huge potential to like groundbreaking, like step to like the next S-curve technology. But it's like kind of tucked away in like a federal research lab. And like some people know about it, but I think uh, Josh uh, and then, you know, you have Drexler and you have, who's the other? Um, Ralph Merkel, there are only like five to 10 people who have actually done any like public, real deep thinking on in this space. It just like seems like everyone is just glossing over this. It's like, are we missing something? I feel like there's the normal hype cycle stuff, which I'm sure plays an part here as well. But I think part of it is also like I felt the same way when I read a little bit about the fusion technology, right? The fact that there are Fusion startups that have demonstrated success, even if in a small scale, it's pretty impressive. Because I remember when I was growing up, Fusion was a technology that never came, right? Like, you know, with Tokamak reactors and like these things would never work. It's always 25 years away and there's a series of jokes about it. So I felt like, okay, so clearly somebody's making it work. And I, I know funding is not an indicator of success, but like a couple of them have raised like $100, $200 million and they're trying to kind of actually scale it up. Now, it might still die for a whole list of political considerations or even technological considerations, but the fact that there has been effort put behind it and demonstrated successes in a small scale leads me to believe that even if it doesn't, even if none of these companies succeed in the next five years, there's at least going to be somebody who is going to succeed in the next 10 years or 20 years, because that's how everything has worked, right? I mean, AI companies failed miserably in the, whatever, 80s and after the winter, it's come back because you can now actually, you know, <laughs> you you now have the chips to put them at. Well, you pair that with like the, the funding ecosystem. 
and people are are much more willing to kind of make up like invest in these sorts of things like boom supersonic got inve- like private investment like that wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago it's like these these things that that hold promise that have just been ignored for perhaps political or you know capitalization reasons are now coming back in the limelight like oh this is there's something huge here this could like fundamentally shift the way people travel or people live or that we build things let's get this thing up and running and so the nanotechnology component of the future is probably like on the 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 most like one of the most like forward thinking frontiers or like one of the most out there frontiers you know that's still practical that people just have not like been pulled into yet yeah i mean there's a little bit of like fetishization of what has already worked in technology to some extent right i mean we are living through an era of software where we think of apple as a hardware company but what they create is beautiful and and you know pretty great but it's not exactly groundbreaking at least not in the sense that you would think of a fusion reactor or you know a nano medicine provider as groundbreaking i mean the best thing to come out of apple in terms of groundbreaking is their m1 chip right i mean which is you know it's pretty amazing but i don't think it's the same uh, leap as when uh, intel unveiled their first chip so we are making strides in making things more efficient, effective, which is what you would expect from a large successful company because I wouldn't expect them to be coming up with the next great innovation that sort of shocks the world, even though maybe they should. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the standard like cycle of innovation, right? You have the people on the frontier and they're like, oh, cool, we build this thing and they become the incumbents. And then it's like, okay, cool. It's the next thing. And someone else has to come in and do it because they just can't kind of move their shit fast enough. Financially, I guess it makes sense. I mean, Tim Cook has been at the helm of Apple now for close to a decade or maybe slightly lesser. And I think under his watch, Apple has 6x its market market cap. I think they went from like 300 billion or so when Steve Jobs handed over to him to now like 2 trillion, which is an incredible meteoric rise that just cannot be underscored more highly. So he's done his job really, really, really well. It's just that his job didn't require him to reinvent the wheel, which is the way it is. I think that Tim Cook thing, he's, he's been able to ride the co-waves of like Jobs' vision and just like continue to squeeze, like make it more and more efficient. Because Jobs died in 2011. The iPhone was out for like two years. It was only on like singular wireless. It was like on singular before AT&T bought them. Like, that was one network rollout in 2008. Like there's no copy and paste. I think that's kind of riding the normal S-curve that you would expect from an industry where technology is kind of, I don't want to say mature, but at least understood. So they can kind of patch the next one on and kind of go on with the commercialization part of it. And, you know, full credit, right? I am in no way saying that is a lesser accomplishment in any sense. It is a tremendously hard thing to do, but it is a different thing. And that's okay. I mean, that's just kind of the way, I mean, people still say Steve Jobs was not an innovator because he sort of focused primarily on the design aspect of things. And I think that's a different way to innovate. That's all. It's, it's, I mean, you can kind of take your pick, right? It's like there's fundamental technical innovation that happens oftentimes in laboratories and places like that. But somebody needs to take that and actually commercialize it for the world where more people can actually use it. And that transition is not always easy to do except for maybe pharma and medicine, we see that in pretty much every sector that somebody needs to actually make that work, right? Because otherwise you're just not going to be able to do it. And then I think that on like the pharma and medicine side, like there's so much more innovation that like could be unlocked there, but it's like cost prohibitive. I think just to kind of tie back to like a broader theme here, which is the computing power 
is driving down the cost of a lot of these things and, and giving people the ability to do like alpha fold. Yeah. Uh, what? Yeah. Crazy. Amazing. And the drugs are going to be developed based on like that research being public and accessible. It's going to be, it's going to be wild. And that wouldn't have, again, wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. I looked at this recently, I think last week, like, I mean, on the one hand, like there's a little bit of, there's an accounting question here to some extent in the sense that like, I think the normal argument is something like, you know, to get a successful drug through it's cost whatever, a billion and a half dollars. And that sounds absurd, right? I mean, it sounds crazy. But then what that actually tells you is less about the cost to get a drug through and the probability of getting a drug through the pipeline. So there are kind of two, there's two factors here. I mean, factor one is that like to actually do the R&D to develop a drug and push it through the three clinical trial phases kind of takes X amount of money. But that's actually not the lion's share, right? The lion's share is actually the fact that you need to do 10 of them because nine will die. So it's a little bit like you look at the venture capital investors portfolio and look at like, oh, you know, how much money did you make on Facebook and divide that by like every other investment that you did. So in some ways, like you're, you're like the billion and a half looms so high in the public's mind, but it's not apples to apples comparison. In some ways, I feel part of it is just that like, because there are so few pharma companies, their accounting works like this for obvious reasons, because, you know, it is cost, right? But if instead of, you know, 20 pharma companies, if there were 200 pharma companies, the market should sort this out a little bit better. I guess that's point one. Point two is that the probability of getting a successful drug through has been dropping over a period of time. And that's just kind of a fact. And that tells us a little bit like the, our ability to identify new um, drugs that gets through is not, I mean, has been dropping. And there might there are very, very good reasons why that might be the case above and beyond the usual organizational ossification cases. I mean, there's like actual scientific reasons why this might be the case. The interesting thing about things like alcohol is like that actually potentially brings back the ability to get a higher throughput because you can now simulate a bunch of stuff that you couldn't do before. So like, I think what I'm most intrigued by with these things is like now they might bring back the ability for us to now pre-screen a bunch of drugs and say, these things are just never going to work because now we can simulate them and test them. Whereas before, the only way to do that is to like actually do three, three, three clinical trials and just see if it works, right? I mean, it's hard, right? I mean, it's like if you and I came up with an idea for a company today, like shooting down that idea is going to be sort of not that easy. Like there's arguments to be made on both sides. Pretty much the only way to do it is to actually build it and see if it works. Whereas it's the same thing in like pharma to a large extent where you have to actually build it and see if it works. Instead of actually building it in real life in bits, uh, sorry, in atoms, if you can build it in bits, you unlock a whole new sort of era of efficiency. I don't think it's going to be that widespread that quickly because none of these things get commercialized that fast. But like even the possibility that this can actually, even if it changes marginally, you take like one drug out of 10, that suddenly increases your efficiency by like a crazy percentage. It's interesting to think about the implications of being able to do all of like the, a lot of the trial work yeah. and the simulation beforehand, right? Yes. I mean, anything that gets you to a point where you can rule things out faster is probably going to be helpful. Even if you don't manage to get to the point of ruling things in, right? I mean, this is my like positive selection versus negative selection. Positive would be you say, I'm going to identify the drug that is going to treat breast cancer really, really fast. And that's just a hard problem to crack. 
But instead of that, if you're able to even identify a drug that like this will not treat drug cancer, uh, breast cancer, so I don't actually need to test it by going through the clinical trials, that's already hugely helpful. So we might get there in fits and starts, but I'm pretty optimistic about our ability to at least start doing more of this on the margin. Just to kind of close on that, like there's a couple of companies like Octant Bio where they're doing like targeted drug therapy. And like when we can start to pinpoint the specific pathways and channels of, like certain drugs like affect, you pair that with the ability to simulate like how they operate. It's like cool, like the, the personalized medic medicine, like based on like how your body would respond to like your body has something that needs to be brought off, like cool drugs can be specifically like created to enable your body and like your hormone levels and you know whatever else like what your current state is like use those resources then fight the thing and then because we can model it out it's like oh this actually isn't going to affect any of your other systems like cool we're good to go and then that just like clears out this whole cruft of like every drug has to be safe for everybody instead of like oh if we can personalize these i think this is one of those cases where uh, to bring back one of our early points where getting better in software getting better in uh, bits enables us to get better in atoms and it kind of creates a little bit of benefit coming from one domain that you can now apply to another, right? I mean, the fact that we are like our ability to simulate better or our ability to run, you know, better sorts of analysis enables us to create better drugs that are now going to be able to sort of increasingly affect us. So whether that is because we are now able to discover specific pathways and kind of create targeted therapies, either because we have, you know, technologies like CRISPR that enables us to play with the genome slightly better or it's because we have technologies like AlphaFold that enables us to simulate that better. The end result is that you're now going to be able to create a drug that is sort of cheaper, faster, speedier route to market. I mean, we're already seeing some of this with the mRNA vaccine, right? I mean, like, because you can now create a new vaccine in sort of a record time effectively. And because it's not like an attenuated virus, like it's much easier, much simpler for you to actually create it, even if in lab, and you can kind of mass produce it, mass manufacture it, and kind of take it to market. It's a little bit of a step change, at least insofar as specific diseases are concerned. And I think we should hope that it generalizes over a period of time. I think so. I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, given the there's enough interest and like enough of a demand to like make these systems better, like we, we need to we need to do these things. <laughs> Anything you want to plug? Substack, Twitter, where can people find you? Sure. People can find me on Twitter. I do write weekly on uh, Substack at Strange Loop Canon. So say hi. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share your favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time, go build.